This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, when you're a kid, there's nothing more exciting than seeing a jumping castle at a party. Kids get all around them. You just want to be part of it. But a year and a half ago, a jumping castle tragedy in Tasmania ended with six children dying. Others left injured and traumatised, a whole community devastated. You might remember it. In a bit, we have a special chat with a survivor of the Hillcrest Jumping Castle tragedy. He and his family are speaking for the first time publicly to us about what happened that day and how they're trying to make sense of it all still. Also coming up, addicted to work. How many of you are workaholics? It's more than you think, so how do you break that addiction? First, though. Hack. It gives you anxiety and it just makes you worry about what you've done. On Triple J. You know, we're never going to be able to understand the full impact and trauma that robo-debt inflicted on so many Australians. Hundreds of thousands of people chased down for millions of dollars of debts, a lot of people wrongly accused of owing money. Hack's been telling your stories since the beginning, and it led to a royal commission, a big investigation that saw everyone from former Prime Minister Scott Morrison down giving evidence. Now, we don't know what recommendations that Royal Commission is going to make. We're going to hear those later this year. But the government has come out today with an announcement. You might have seen this. It's getting rid of external debt collectors to chase welfare debts. Instead, all the debt recovery is going to happen in-house through Services Australia. It's time to find out more. Let's talk to someone who can tell us more. Government Services Minister Bill Shorten made this announcement. He's with us now. Bill Shorten, welcome back to Hack. Great to be on. There's a mixed reaction from our audience today on this announcement. Like, obviously, some people really happy with it, saying about time, but others saying, well, it wasn't the debt collectors that started all this. It was the government. Can you understand why people do think this is too little too late? Uh, yes, uh, robo-debt should never have happened. Uh, and then when robo-debt did happen, it should have been stopped a lot earlier than it was. So, obviously, um, but I don't accept that this is nothing either. I'm not pretending that this is the full Royal Commission findings. I pushed to have the class action when I was in opposition and I pushed to have the Royal Commission in government. But I do think this is a development and it's been welcomed by ACOS, Consumer Action Legal Centre, Economic Justice Australia, people who are on the front line of consumer advocacy. So not using external debt collectors isn't the whole source of the problem of robo-debt, but what robo-debt exposed was the problem of using external debt collectors. So I'm not pretending this is anything more than what it is, but it is a uh, a sort of a flag in the sand, so to speak, where we say um, that in this government and when I'm the Gov Services Minister, I don't want to treat Centrelink recipients as potential criminals until they can prove otherwise. So one way we do that is by putting dignity and humanity back into the process, not relying on external debt collectors to, in a fairly brutal and callous fashion, regardless of the circumstances of a person who may have received an overpayment, we want to have a much you know, more dignified and uh, respectful, empathetic, humane approach because most people who, if there's an overpayment in the welfare system, 
Uh, it's inadvertence. It's a mistake. You know, ideally the government would have better software so it doesn't even happen. So we don't start from the view that if you owe the government a debt, that somehow you're a villain and a second-class human being. You're not. So can you assure young Australians that they'll never have to experience the trauma that a, a lot did in terms of debt collection mm. again? I can assure them while I'm the minister and while the current government's in that we're not going to use external debt collectors uh, on social welfare payment issues. Yes. I mean, you've said you want to stop robo-debt happening again. Mm. Experts in this area say, look, this is a very important step, what was announced today, but we need Mm. to be giving more power to the people. Like instead of saying... Uh, yeah. trust us to do better, what are you going to be doing to make it easier for people to fight this stuff in tribunals, to understand how the system yeah, works, to give them more points. power? They're all very fair points. First of all, I start from a worldview that when you receive welfare, that's not some favour you're getting, that's not charity. It's a minimum human right in a civilised society. As people discovered during COVID, but it shouldn't have taken until COVID to discover it, the world can cha- your world can change very quickly and all of a sudden you do need the legitimate safety net, which is there as a right. So the first thing I'm saying there, perhaps in a long-winded fashion, is if you want a better system, you've got to respect what the system's for. And the system isn't just to be run efficiently like making trains run on time. It's a much... This is a crucial human right. And if someone receives an overpayment or if the government thinks there's a problem, then what we've got to do is, one, try and improve government payment systems so it's not always left up to the recipient of the government payment to have to know every detail. Uh, We've single-touch payroll. We should be a lot better at pre-filling. So we want to avoid mistakes to begin with. That's the ideal outcome. But then if there is an issue or a mistake or just a red flag, in the very first communication that the government has with the individual, with the citizen, should be saying, hey, we think there's an issue here, but we don't just tell them, well, you owe us the money. We've got to spell out in really plain English, accessible language, that you've got rights, how the calculations come to be, which the government thinks there's an issue. The government needs to invest in having not reversing the onus onto citizens saying, hey, we think there's a problem, you sort it out but working with people to get to the bottom of what's happened and not from an assumption that the person who receives the letter has done something wrong. So taking the... We've got a lot of people, yeah, no, we've got a lot of people saying that, that the onus does need to shift. Bill Shorten, we're running out of time, but, you know, we've got the recommendations from this Royal Commission coming out in June. Can Mm. you commit to, you know, accepting and acting on all of those? I'd want to see what they are, but as the people who called the Royal Commission... It would have to be a truly remarkable set of circumstances where we didn't. But I can't make that whole decision on behalf of a whole government. But RoboDebt was unlawful. Uh, we've resourced this Royal Commission because the story had to be told and the re, you know, the, the shocking evidence needed to come out and it wouldn't have come out otherwise. So I expect that the recommendations will be incredibly useful. The Royal Commissioner and the, and the researchers and the councils assisting have been incredibly professional and diligent. So, you know, I expect that the recommendations will be things which this government would embrace, but I have to put just one caveat that we haven't actually seen them all and I've 
It's not just a, a me decision, that's a whole cabinet decision, but it's this government who set up the Royal Commission. We haven't set it up to ignore it. Yeah, well, look, we will be checking in with you, no doubt, uh, many times over the next few mm. months. Government Services Minister Bill Shorten, thanks for coming on Hack. Yeah, and thanks for your advocacy on this issue. Thank Cheers. You. Hack. On a day when these children were meant to be celebrating their last day of primary school, instead, we're all mourning their loss. On Triple J. You know, the news is full of bad stuff. You don't need me to tell you that. Every day there's something awful that's happened to someone and it's a lot to take in. But usually headlines, you know, come and go. Maybe you forget about something. There are some things that stick with you for a long time, those events that rip communities apart. And one of those you might remember happening in Australia, in Tasmania more than a year ago, the Hillcrest Jumping Castle tragedy. Six primary school kids killed when a jumping castle was lifted into the air in December 2021. Survivors are now starting to tell their stories. And, you know, when this was making headlines around the world, there were journalists coming from everywhere to cover it. But it was the locals who were there first that were trying to make sense of what was going on. And one of those was Hack's very own, Tasmania reporter April McLennan. And she's with us right now. Hey, April, thanks for coming on. Hi, Dave. You were one of the first journalists there to cover the Hillcrest Jumping Castle tragedy. I know it was a really traumatic experience. Looking back, what was it like? Um, well, I guess at the start, we just didn't have any idea of how bad it was. I remember getting a media release from the police saying that there'd been an incident involving a jumping castle. So the cameraman and I jumped in the car and we started heading towards the area in northwest Tasmania. And on the way there we started getting overtaken by all these ambulances, one after the other, and I think that's when it really hit us that, okay, something has gone terribly wrong. When we got to the school, it was chaos. That's the only way to describe it. There was a helicopter, ambulance, fire trucks, police. You could see the school oval and hanging from the tree was the jumping castle. Parents were still coming to the school, frantically running around, trying to find their child, trying to figure out if they had, in fact, been involved in the incident. Um, we did have to watch on as one mother was told that her child didn't make it. So that was, yeah, a, a really tough moment. Um, on the Oval, they were still working on one of the children there who didn't make it either. Um, by the afternoon, that they'd taken that child's body away. So, yeah, it was it was absolutely devastating scenes. And for me, it was the worst day of my life. And I, I'm just a journalist. I can't even imagine what it was like for a parent or a student, you know, the whole community there. I, I can't even begin to imagine what impact that's had on their whole world. It's horrible, April. And, you know, as a journalist covering it, I mean, it's your job, but also it's part of your community. And these stories impact you for not only days and weeks but months and years and I can tell that this is something that still sits really heavily with you. You've been staying in touch with a lot of the people affected by this. One of them has opened up about their experiences. They were ready to talk. Who have you spoken with? Yeah, so I guess after this happened, I, I reached out to a lot of the families, not to pressure them into an interview, but just to say, hey, I'm here if you need anything. I'm a local journo. I'm not going anywhere. And one family that I really connected with was um, John, Tammy and Bo Medcraft. So 
Bo was 12 years old and he was actually on the jumping castle. I've stayed in contact with them for the past 16 months and recently they reached out to me and Bo said he's finally ready to share his story. Okay, April, let's have a listen to your chat with Bo and his family. Got to school, basically all happy. Told mum that I was going to have the best day ever. It's the last day of school and then got up to class and walked down to the Oval with my class. Jumped on the jumping cars and all of a sudden just took off. And yeah, fell out. Yeah, so um, when you say it took off, it went up into yeah, the air? Yeah, went up into the air. Yeah. And do you remember much what happened when it finally did come back down? No, I don't remember really. I remember just looking over and it's torn up and yeah. And your best mate was there with you? No. No? He took off in the German castle and he landed somewhere else. I don't know where he landed. What was going through your mind at that point? Mainly just if my best mate was alright, but he's not here today, so yeah. But I basically got took up to a classroom and then took down to the office and they rang mum. I got a phone call from the school and they just informed me that I might need to go and pick Bo up because we think he's broken his arm. So I'm like, yep, okay, and then went to go and pick Bo up and I turned the corner into Lawrence Drive and there was police and ambulance and helicopters and cars everywhere and I yeah, went into a bit of panic mode and thought, well, he's only supposed to have broken his arm, what's going on? And, yeah, parked up on the footpath and sort of ran inside to go and find him. And he was sitting in the office with um, one of the parents that had been sitting with him and took good care of him until I got there. We rang John and told him what was going on because John was home without a car. And then, yeah, finally got checked out at the hospital said that um, he needed his wrists to be put back in place and that sort of stuff, but they couldn't do it then. They had to take him to Bernie. And John, what was that like for you getting that phone call? Absolutely horrible, mate. Tammy rang me and said, there's a bit of an incident at school. And I went, OK, all right, you OK? Yeah, because I haven't got a car. And next minute, there's updates on the TV and the radio and I'm getting phone calls and messages and just gone, hell, what, what's really going on? And didn't have a clue. Hello, welcome to ABC News. I'm Fauzia Ibrahim. Now, police have confirmed a second child has died as a result of an incident at a primary school in northwest Tasmania. Our reporter April McClendon has more from outside the school the in Devonport. Castle tragedy. Six students were killed and three physically injured when the inflated... I broke my growth plate, my wrist and my arm, and then, and then I fractured like this whole arm. And after that, you sought help at the hospital and it must have been a day or so later, you guys went back to the school. Yeah, we were coming back from Burnie Hospital because I had an appointment there and I asked Dad if we could call into the like school and go on the Oval and have a walk around and everything just to remember what happened and stuff. There was a sea of flowers, balloons, candles, cards, stuffed animals stretching along the nature strip in front of the school. and. I believe you brought something special here as well. What, what did you bring? I took, I think, two teddy bears and four controllers. Yeah, four Xbox controllers. A couple of days later, I drew. I went and got a rock and I drew on it. I wrote like, everyone's name on it and everything and took that up to the school and asked them to put it either in the library or a safe place where they can be remembered at this school. 
that blew us away. On the way back from Bernie, that blew us away when he said, sort of, can we call him the school? And I just want to check on friends. And we kept him up to date at that stage at which friends had sort of passed on and, and, and the severity of what was going on because we didn't hide nothing from him and everything. And we sort of called in the school and media was there and all the parents and that and they sort of swarmed him a bit. It was a bit of an emotional day. I was there and on the first day there were just a couple of us local journos and by the second day there were journalists from all around the country. This was the biggest news story in the world. How was that for you guys, especially you, Bo, trying to navigate that media mob? Dad kind of protected you, didn't he? So, yeah, because yeah. the day that I went back up to the school, they basically just swarmed me and everything. Dad sort of told him to just leave me alone for a little bit. There's one or two that was very respectful, and you was one of them, actually, April, that sort of said, look, in time, if you guys want to talk, and one or two others that weren't quite respectful and weren't... They were a bit too far forward of, of trying to push the subject or the situation and we had a couple of cold, call, cold calls knock on the door and this is the first time we spoke or Bo wanted to sort of speak and Tammy sort of said, yeah, we, we'd like to reach out and say, hey, thanks and this is where we're at. There's sort of there's a big inquest still going. There's still a big investigation that's still going but we just unfortunately just have to be patient but we just we also want answers. That's John Medcraft, the dad of Bo Medcraft, a survivor of the Hillcrest Jumping Castle tragedy that happened in Tasmania in 2021. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. We're speaking about this because our reporter here at Hack, April McLennan, has been covering this story since it happened. And she's been chatting with Bo and Bo's parents who have, for the first time, opened up about what that day was like and how their lives have been changed forever. April, we know there's going to be an inquest into this tragedy, but it seems to have been delayed a lot. Where are we up to? When's it going to happen? Well, we don't exactly know yet. There's hopes that it will happen later this year, but it's hit a little bit of a bump in the road. So WorkSafe Tasmania conducted an investigation about the incident to try and figure out what went so terribly wrong. And the coroner wants a copy of this report. They want to gather all the relevant information so they can figure out what happened. But WorkSafe Tasmania has actually said no. They're refusing to hand this report over because they're really worried it could prejudice any potential prosecution going forward. But the coroner said, well, look, I need all the information to do this inquest. So they have put everything on hold. And at the moment, we're just waiting to see what happens with this report. If the findings from the WorkSafe Tasmania investigation will go to the coroner or not. So hopefully later this year, but we're not sure at this point. So I'll keep you updated on that one, Dave. I imagine, April, this is so tough for the families because it has been more than a year and they're trying to also get on with their lives, but they can't until they go through this process of the inquest. Yeah, that's actually something I've spoken to Bo and his family about and also the huge impact on their mental health going forward. Okay, April, let's get back into that chat with Bo and his parents. We're disappointed at this at the start of when all this happened because a lot of families that didn't get help uh, still are not getting help. There's still a lot of kids that are suffering that, that were on were, were there. They weren't might not have been on the front line, but they were there. They haven't got the help. They didn't receive the help. And it, it's frustrating too because a lot of the help was there, but it wasn't... The help didn't... It, it was like, this is the person who got to work with you regardless if you like them or not. If you don't, well, then it's your problem. Well, that was frustrating and made a lot of people angry to walk away and go, well, 
we're not doing it. That's not how we want to do things. So we were lucky. We found Bo a really good counsellor that we sort of took we persevered. We took a while. We changed the couple. Three times. Yeah. And in the end, he clicked with someone, and they clicked with him, and she's been brilliant. Uh, on that, Bo, like, what's been the impact on on your mental health? Wanted to be with my best mate is, to be honest. Okay, if you don't feel like talking about yeah. him, but how did you guys meet? Like, how long have you been mates? I went through primary school with me, but I didn't really know him until grade six. And the first day of grade six, we just clicked. We were best mates ever since. Played Xbox every night. He had arguments with mum and everything, trying to get me to stay on Xbox for longer. Didn't work, but yeah. Yeah, almost a, a part of the family then. Yeah. You sat down and worked out how many hours you'd actually spent on Xbox with. playing games with each other, and it was pretty phenomenal. It was yeah. pretty phenomenal. How many hours was it? Over 2,000. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There was, there was one game that we played, and it was Fortnite. We played that mostly every day, and we spent over 260 hours on that game on one single game. We spent over 260 hours playing every night and day. Wow. So, yeah. How are you remembering him? You know, well, still play Fortnite and... Yeah, yeah. Still play it and all that. I message him on Xbox and have conversations with myself. For all of you, what impact has this had? Like, your whole world's basically been flipped upside down. It was huge. It, it affected his brother, his sisters, um, in, in their mental state of, of um, gee, we nearly lost our brother. and You're more apprehensive to let your child go now. You're more apprehensive to, load, like, I'm even letting Bo go out for a ride in his BMX sort of thing for a couple of hours. It's just, it's hard. Yeah, you're trying to protect them more, so, aren't you? Like, yeah. how about you? I think once I sort of got over the guilt that my child had made it while others hadn't, that was really hard for me to work through. But once I'd sort of done that, I sort of, yeah, picked up and sort of got moving a little bit more for myself. I saw you nodding there, John, about Tammy's comment about the guilt. There for a long time, he, he sort of had some really bad thoughts of, I shouldn't be here and, and yeah, and I want to be with my mates or my friends and, 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 you know, how come I'm here today, Dad? And there's sort of they're hard questions to answer. He's come to the point now, like he kicked a couple of goals the other day, he pointed straight to the sky and we knew what he was doing, so... He's sort of he's he's finding a purpose and 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 a way that he has to do what he has to do. Yeah, he's got a long way to go. Can you tell me about those feelings about your survivor skill? I didn't know what to do, because like yeah, I could talk to mum and dad, but at some stages I felt like they didn't understand when I wasn't. I probably wasn't saying the right thing for them to understand. I was wondered why I was here and they weren't, and why I made it and everything and didn't want to be here. It didn't feel right. And how are you feeling about that now? Well, I'm feeling all right because I know that I'm here because obviously me nan or someone wants me here because me nan isn't here either, so. So you feel like you've had a bit of a guardian angel looking over yeah. you? Yeah, but I'm mainly just trying to find somewhere to go and kick more goals to make the people out there that are in my family happy and my mates happy. John, what would you like to say to the community? Thank you for the support, for the, for the fundraiser. Unfortunately, we've got to keep moving forward and keep going, keep fighting, keep battling. But no, it's just thank you.
thank you to the, the parents that are still battling this every day. You know, keep going, keep fighting. The kids that are still battling this every day, keep going, keep fighting. We wish them the best, we really do. They're on our minds all the time. The, the parents that have lost their children, our hearts go out from every day. We, we, we can't even think of a word really to, to, to make anything even feel okay, but we've got to keep love for them. We'd give everything that we've got to bring the kids back. Yeah. Hack on Triple J. That was Tammy Medcraft there ending a big interview that Hack's Tasmanian reporter April McLennan did with Bo Medcraft, a survivor of the Hillcrest Jumping Castle tragedy, which happened in 2021. An awful story April has covered since the beginning and really powerful thing to listen to. April, it must be, I don't know, really tough to get back into such a traumatic experience, but also incredible to see how Bo's going and how strong he is. It, it has been really tough, Dave, but I think for myself and, and Bo and Tammy and John, it was really important to do this story because for the family, they really just wanted to say thank you. After this happened, they received messages of love and support from all around the world, from, you know, America, China, Canada, everywhere. And they read all the messages, but they couldn't respond to each one individually. So they wanted to say thank you to everyone around Australia, around the world, and to the first responders, you know, the people in the local community, the parents, the teachers, and and just really give that message of love and support. Well, April, I doubt there's anyone listening with a dry eye. That was heavy, but it was important. And can I just say, you are an incredible reporter. We are so lucky to have you at Hack, and the world needs more journalists like you who cover stories with respect, with sensitivity. It's the most important thing. You know, a big thanks to Bo and his parents for being so vulnerable and opening up to us. But April, a big thanks to you as well for sharing that with us. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, a lot of messages on the text line, people saying choking back tears, that was so heartbreaking. Another person saying, you know, thank you to April for covering that. Um, you know, hoping she's okay. If that has raised any thing for you at all. Remember, Lifeline's always there. They're on 13 11 14. Hack. Work hard, like, every waking hour. Get your f***ing ass up and work. On Triple Jack. Hey, are you committed to your job? Fully into it? What about addicted? Because a lot of us are. We can't disconnect. And when we do, we might even start experiencing withdrawals. I mean, working from home has already blurred so many lines, right? We know that. But how much do we know about work addiction? Well, Dr. Rachel Potter's from the University of South Australia, and she's looking into it at the moment. Rachel, welcome to Hack. Hi, thanks for having me. You're wanting to learn more about work addiction. What are you hoping to get out of this research you're doing? Uh, Really, we're hoping to kind of get a really clear idea exactly what work addiction is and to understand globally uh, the risk factors for work addiction. We have some information already available, but we want a more kind of um, solid definition there. Um, We also want to understand from which points in someone's life um, contribute to them experiencing work addiction. So we know it's not just personality uh, issues. It can be um, the culture you're born into. It can be, um, you know, the need to make money, for example. So we're trying to get a really good idea of the different levels um, in someone's life that contribute towards them experiencing work addiction so we can better prevent it. Interesting. I was going to ask about personality, actually, but I wanted to also ask how common it is. Like, do we know how many people experience this? 
Yeah, well, it's actually really quite common. Um, some previous data has seen um, up to one in five people experience work addiction. Wow. Um, from recent data we've got from Australia, which is um, like a very large um, pool of data we've managed to collect, um, we can actually see that about 30% of the sample um, are experiencing a high risk um, risk factors for experiencing work addiction. So it's quite high, one of the highest we've seen um, in comparison to other countries. And of that, you know, it's actually quite prevalent in younger people, which is also um, quite surprising. Okay, yeah, because, I mean, younger people constantly on their phones, so maybe they're always checking their emails or taking calls or are connected to work in that way. The manager has more access to them. Do you think that could be playing a role in all of this? Yeah, absolutely. And that um, that also is supported with other research we've found where, um, you know, a lot of supervisors expect that response, you know, from the, the worker quite quickly. So it's just kind of becoming this 24-7 um, economy, really, where it's hard to switch off, hard to get um, recovery time in, and that kind of feeds into this notion of being addicted or compulsed to work. So it's definitely a part of it. And do we think the pandemic's played a big role in this as well? I think absolutely. It's given people, um, you know, a more chance to work from home, for those people that can do that. But, um, you know, it also has created a lot of economic uncertainty for people. So they might feel compelled to um, to need to pick up more shifts or to work longer hours um, to maintain their job security. So there's lots of different um, facets at play here. But certainly um, the pandemic has completely overhauled the way we work now and where we work when we work. So we, everyone's trying to navigate this new um, landscape in the field of work. It's very, very interesting research you're doing and I know we're going to be wanting to check in with you to see Uh how it all goes because, you know, this does affect so many people listening right now, I'm sure. Dr Rachel Potter from the University of South Australia, I look forward to seeing uh, where you go to with this big study and Uh hearing about the results. Thank you very much for coming on Hack. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast. I'll catch you next time.